Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, good morning, wonderful family. Everybody doing okay? Good. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Thank you for that group. It continues to grow each week as I pay attention to that. I just uh, want to say to you, because I hope I'm the first one, happy Thanksgiving. So catch you, catch you early this week. This is going to be a wonderful week. Um, um, I didn't know if you wanted to write this down. I, um, I found out something uh, over the last few months that have been really powerful. Um, we are in a, a password login credential world. So on my notes section of my phone, I'd have to scroll for a few minutes just in passwords and logins, right? So now I have Password Keeper on my computer, and Password Keeper has, I think I have 92 different credentials on different apps, websites, whatever, okay? And I found the password to God's presence, and I wanted to share it with you and see if you wanted to write it down, okay? Here it is, T-H-A-N-K space Y-O-U. That's, that's the password to God's presence. If you want to access the presence of God, you have to log in to thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. See, it's the heart of gratitude that opens up the heart of God to us, His children. And quite honestly, that's the only adequate response that we could offer to God in His goodness and grace. Amen? He has been so good to us. Well, we're coming down to the final few connect groups of the 2022 or uh, fall 2022 semester. If you're not familiar, we do have connect group ministry that happens. Many of them happen on Sundays. Some of them happen with prayer group on a Tuesday or a ladies group on a Wednesday. We have a men's group that meets each Saturday morning. And there's wonderful opportunities to engage. And so uh, I want to highlight for you just for a few moments, today is connect group Sunday. And then we have one, some groups have two more meetings in the month of December, and then we take a couple-week hiatus, and then, everybody say this to me, say January 7th, we start a brand new semester, so our spring semester will take us all the way into summer starts, and one of our Connect Group leaders new to this semester, uh, he and his wife have been leading, is Juan and Sarah Copiano, and so I'm going to invite Juan up to the stage right quick, all right, y'all welcome Juan. Before we jump into the Word of God, they're going to show a map right quick of Cherokee County. I've asked Juan to pray for Canton, Willesca, and Ballground, because that's where he lives. And the next gathering, we're going to pray for other parts of our community. And so, Juan, you live in Canton, right, off exit 20, he's Riverstone Parkway, and it's been an awesome semester with Connect Group, right? So he's going to pray, and would you all pray with him as God leads him? Lord, we just thank you. We, we worship you because you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We I just want to thank you, Lord, for this past semester of the Connect Group. Lord, I thank you for all that you've done, all the divine connections that have happened, of people just coming and sharing and being open and vulnerable. I just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for uh, fellowship, Lord. Thank you because you have not created us to be alone, but to do life with people. I just thank you, Lord, for what you're going to continue doing through this, um, through these Connect Groups, through this church. And I just pray, Lord, for next semester, for January, as we start our new semester, Lord, I pray that as people are going to be coming in, maybe for the first time, Lord, there's probably a lot of fear, Lord. I pray that people will know that it is a safe place for them to come and share and to be vulnerable, Lord, that they are fully loved and they are fully accepted, Lord, as they come in. I just pray, Lord, for our city of Canton, yes, Waleska, uh, Ballground, Lord. I just pray that we would be a light 
to the world, Lord. I pray that you will fill us with your spirit, Lord, to be disciples who make disciples, Lord, that we will be the salt of the earth, Lord, that we would be, um, that we will be, live a life that surrender, Lord, and that um, we will look for opportunities, Lord, to share the gospel, to set people free from the bondage of sin, Lord. And we thank you, King Jesus, because we know that you're going to be glorified. We know that you will receive all the glory, Lord Jesus, because there is no one like you. And we just praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can take it down. Awesome. Y'all give it up for Juan. Thank you, Juan. Well, praise God. We are in week number three, generous God, generous people. Generous God, generous people. We're in the book of James today. If you grab your Bible, you can follow along in the Version app if you'd like to. There's also the digital sermon card available for you. The heading of this section, James chapter 5, is called Warning to Rich Oppressors. That's a tough heading. That's a tough heading, right? Uh, I got to confess to you, I've preached through the book of James many times. I've talked through it, I guess, more than preaching. And today, I, I definitely want to teach. I, I'm not going to do much preaching. I want to teach through this text today. And I have, uh, I have shied away from this text on many occasions. It is extremely difficult, extremely tough words. But it speaks to where we are, certainly in Western culture, but more specifically in a consumeristic culture like the United States of America. I'm going to ask everyone to stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's take a look at this. James chapter 5, we're going to read six verses in our hearing. Jump straight into the Word today. James chapter 5, this is what the text says. Now listen, you rich people, weep and well because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You've murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to always study your Word. Help us to see Jesus clearly, to hear your voice. Lord, change us, transform us today in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Now, friends, this is God's Word. This is the text of Scripture. When you hear words and when I hear words like this, they tend to produce two responses. You might be a variation of one of the two responses, but holistically, they're one of two responses. Number one is to dismiss it. It's not talking about me, or if it is talking about me, I tend to get a little defensive that's connected to these things. And part of the challenge, friends, is that if we're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus, when we hear God's Word and we don't put it in context, we really miss out on what God is trying to communicate to us. So let me just for a few moments put it in context. I want to really paint some picture today so you get a really good understanding of what's happening in what we call the apostolic age of church life. So in the early century, the early first century. So we imagine when we read James that James is writing to us. Nothing can be further from the truth. Writing not to modern America, but what I want to do is actually go back because he's actually addressing a specific group of people in the first century. And the question that I want you to ask as I walk you through history is, are we like those people? Are we like those people? Do we live like them? Do we have the same values? Uh, those people that James is addressing? And how do, I, how do I understand how to break against what he's kind of sort of raging against in this passage? So the way I want to do that is just I want to walk through two big ideas. The talk is in two parts. Number one, what is godless wealth? 
And number two, what is godly wealth? So number one, what is godless wealth? And how do you define the characteristics that are connected against it? Because that's what James is really addressing in this passage. And then the second thing is, after we looked at godless wealth, we're going to juxtapose godly wealth and say, what does it look like to be blessed and to have resources and to use my resources in a godly manner, both my time, talent, and treasure? So let's juxtapose godless wealth, godly wealth. Godless wealth. What are the traits of godless wealth? Well, we see in verse 3, you want to keep your text open. I'm going to refer time and time again. He says it's about hoarding. Godless wealth is about hoarding. Notice this. He says, verse 3, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, who is the who in the passage? Okay, think about this. Who is the one he's engaging? Well, in order to understand who he's speaking against, you have to understand the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, okay? And at the time that James is writing this particular passage, the city of Jerusalem had been broken up completely into what we call or along socioeconomic lines. So in Jerusalem at the time of James, there was a rich part in the city where all of the world in the Mediterranean world flowed to. It was filled with cultural elites. It had fine homes. It had luxury, privilege. And then the rest of the city was cut off from that. And the rest of the city were people who were living downwind, literally, of all the sewer systems of the city of Jerusalem. This is pre-industrial revolution, so it was very stinky in the parts that were downwind. It was a sort of a marked boundary, if you will, where the rich were not exposed to it and all of the poor had this drift coming down and staying on top of them. At the time of the writing of this passage, there was really large wealth gaps that had opened up predominantly around the rule and the infrastructure that was set up by a man named Herod the Great. King Herod the Great. Now, King Herod the Great, we'll reference so many times in Advent. I love this season. We always talk about Herod in the month of December. But Herod the Great was great primarily because of his capacity to build. If you've been to Israel, you'll know this very quickly. I've taught on this before many times. But he literally, the building of his empire, and what caused Herod to go down in history is he was one of the most extraordinary builders of all time. I mean, just remarkable of how much he was able to accomplish in his time. How did he do it though, Pastor Craig? He did it through primary taxation or what we call hyper-aggressive taxation. Now, Jesus' parables are going to come into clear view if you'll follow with me the history of what Jesus is addressing around 30 AD. you got a city where all the resources are flowing to a neighborhood filled with elites. And then everybody else is living out in the vacuum and the fallout of that. King Herod the Great taxed the poor so that the rich could actually live in luxury. 10% historians tell us of the population of Israel lived in the city, but 90% of the population lived at the time of Jesus outside the city gates. They were, for the most part, what we call agrarian farmers. So Herod wanted to exert a system that basically enabled him to extract money from the whole region. And so what he would do is he had to, year after year, take over each system subsequently. So he facilitated his time, first of all, to take over the religious system. The first thing Herod did is he killed two of the high priests and he replaced the high priest with himself so that he could dictate the religious system of Israel. He had relationships with the people in Rome. He was in very good standing with Caesar in Rome. So he had the backing he needed to enforce his will. So watch this. You have the whole system on lockdown. And so where do the cultural elites get their food from if they're in the city and there's no farming in the city? They're running out of food. So what do they do? They go out into the countryside and they exert control over the peasants who are out in the country. Most historians believe that at the time of Jesus, 80 to 90% of people were day laborers in what we call daily agricultural work. It's amazing what percentage of Jesus' parables actually are basically about farming. Why? Because 90% are doing it every day, daylight to dark. That's all they're doing. They're working and getting high taxation to take care of the elites that live inside the city when they can't afford to live inside the city. 
Herod the Great took a tax between, historians tell us, somewhere around 28% of the grain. Sometimes it would go up to 35%, and he took 50% of the fish. So when you got out of the Sea of Galilee, fishermen would go to the dock. They had to wait for Herod to send his men from the far city. They would take what Herod wanted. Then the tax collector would take what they wanted. And you kept about 10% of what you caught in an entire day's work. You were being taxed to death. You were being taxed to keep you in poverty. On top of that, Caesar took 12.5% of the Roman crops of the entire Roman Empire. There was a Roman tribute tax, a Herod tax, a transit trade tax, an exchange tax, a temple tax, a special offerings tax, and a religious tax that you had to pay over the course of the year. It was almost like living in Canada. I'm just kidding. Okay, we love Canada, but... That's why you got free health care, because you pay taxes at the wazoo. So Herod had reduced the region to complete poverty so that he could build not for the, comp- the, the company in common ground, but for his own personal prosperity. In fact, they, they now are excavating some cities of the, uh, of the sections of the city that still find, they're finding that Herod lived a quality of life that is shocking people in the modern world. They have just recently found bottles of wine worth the modern day equivalent of $20,000 a bottle. And he had full sellers of them, not just a few bottles, full sellers of them. So watch this. You've got horrific poverty inside and, or excuse me, right outside the city and a small group of elites inside Jerusalem are taking this. And so you're going to see some physical or some political implications, though I'm not going to address them outright, okay, and how the New Testament gospel addresses what's taking place at the time of Jesus. So there's this permanent underclass in the city of Jerusalem. Now watch what happens. When the gospel comes into the city, the gospel begins to try and address how to close the gap between the cultural elites and the common person. And so what James tells them to do, half-brother of Jesus, is what? You need to remember the poor in the city of Jerusalem. At the end of Romans, you remember what the, Paul says in the end of Romans? Let's read it together. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. From Macedonia to Caio, we're pleased to make contribution for the, what's that next word? Poor. Who? Poor. The poverty was in Jerusalem, not the Gentile churches. The poverty-stricken reality was the Christians that were meeting inside the city gates of Jerusalem. And so what does he tell them to do? He says, I'm taking up these offerings. Not only that, but the 1 Corinthians 16, which is the normal passage people use when they talk about tithing. You remember 1 Corinthians 16? This is what everybody uses when we talk about tithing. He says, I want you to lay up the offering on the first day of the week. That's Sunday morning. And that offering is primarily going to be given to Gentile churches or from Gentile churches to be given to the poor inside of Jerusalem. Why? Because they were under the policies of the Romans and the corrupt religious leaders at the time of Jesus. So what you have while all of this is happening is you've got this beautiful, beautiful community of people following Jesus. And then you've got them juxtaposed against a a group of cultural elites who have rigged the whole system so there's permanent oppression and challenge and the problem is the people in Jerusalem just don't care. This is why when you read so many of the parables of Jesus, they start in this setting and you begin to make sense. Think about with me. Just follow just a few of them. Luke 16, you remember the rich man and Lazarus? Why is Jesus talking about this? Why does he use this language? And what do we do in the modern day America? We make this a parable about the afterlife, but the parable really was about economic oppression. And so because we have the ability to have lots of resource, we don't see it through that lens, right? It's very difficult for us to read scripture as such. You remember the story. There's a rich man who lives in luxury. He has this incredible life. You got a poor man, a beggar who's at his table. He just tells him every day, I want crumbs from your table. And then what happens? When they die, again, we make the parable about the afterlife, but more about economic oppression. The rich man basically is in torment because listen, when you die, the cultural roles are reversed. 
The cultural revolts get, get reversed. So he's miserable, and, the, and the, 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 the poor man is not miserable. And so what does Lazarus do? He says, he, even in the afterlife, the rich man demands Lazarus to go get him water, which means even in the afterlife, your entitlement doesn't leave your heart. It's just the amplification of what you already did living on earth. He still feels self-entitled. Go get that servant of mine and get him get some water on my tongue. No disregard. They get disregard for the poor. And so Jesus is getting pushed into this again and again and again. And he's addressing it head on. Now, put into the context the, the parable of building bigger barns. Remember when Jesus told this one? He says, there's desperate people. They need to eat. And you got a man, Jesus said, who's over here going, you know what? I'm really, really well. And you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm not going to redistribute. I'm not going to be generous. I'm not going to share. I'm going to build bigger barns because I'm getting more resource so I can take it easy. And Jesus says, fool. In fact, the only time Jesus says fool in all the gospels is when he says it to a man who will not redistribute his wealth to those who need it. That's the one time Jesus says it. He calls him a fool. He says, you fool. Tonight, your life's going to be demanded of you. And then Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Indicating that there's a clear kingdom connection between the loss of a person's spirit and the lack of care for the poor. So this is one of the great challenges of America and the great challenge of the New Testament is they're hoarding wealth. Now here we, we hear this and we say, not us. Let me ask you a question. How much toilet paper did you store and hoard at the beginning of the pandemic? Okay? Y'all listen, this is what I'm trying to say. We got this hoarding spirit in us and it's sunk into us by the moment we're born into America. Okay? We're fashioned for it. We're conditioned for it. It's amazing how we circle the wagons and say, as long as I got what I want, the rest can do without. Isn't that what people did? Stockpiling hand sanitizer. As long as I got hand sanitizer, it doesn't matter if anybody else got hand sanitizer. It's amazing how that instinct is still in us. Let's talk just for a moment. Francis Schaeffer, he's now passed. Before he died, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And he basically saw a temptation emerging in the church in the late 1980s. And here's what he said. He said, when the message of the church, this is so powerful. He said, when the message of the American church gets reduced to personal peace and affluence, the church will lose its voice in the larger culture. Y'all, listen to me. Look at me. If you, if you haven't heard me up to this point, I want to make this really clear. He basically says, when the horizon of your concern shrinks, where you as a Christian only think, do my and my family have enough, and I or my family are good, he said the church will instantly cease to be the people of God and will lose the prophetic conscience of a nation called America. That's right. He said we won't have anything else to say. When we just get in the thing where am I good, and my family good, and my resources good, and I stop, with my horizon to the people around me, I've abdicated my ability to speak into a culture. See, what's so amazing, friends, to me, he wrote this book in the 1980s and said, this is coming, and here we are, stockpiling hand sanitizer and toilet paper like we learned nothing. You see, the book of Acts is totally different. They had what we call an alternative narrative of generosity in Jerusalem, and it dealt with this issue. Remember the story of Barnabas? Remember what he did? He went and sold a piece of property he had and he laid the money at the apostles' feet. Why? So that everybody could have what they needed. Y'all, this was not communism. This was communalism. 
I want to make this really clear as we journey for a few moments. Not communism, communalism. What is that? This is a voluntarily giving out of love, seeing people around me and giving for those who need it. And it says in Acts chapter 4 that the grace of God was so powerfully at work amongst the people that nobody considered their own possessions as their own, but they gave freely to anyone as they had need. So this is, this is an amazing movement of generosity. You have a huge cultural gap because of the structures that existed. Now, let me explain something. About 40 years before Jesus, you had a group of people oppressing the poor. The gospel comes and reorients everybody's heart towards one another. There's a huge movement of compassion and concern. And yet there's a group of people in Jerusalem that say, I just don't care. And it's to those people that James says, you're in trouble with God because you're hoarding wealth and everybody else needs it. Here's the second thing. This passage defines godless wealth. He says, not just our wealth, but what we do with our wealth. He says, secondly, these people don't just preserve it. They live in self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Y'all, this is a critique, listen, not about what they had, but about their lifestyle with what they had. Now, at those point, point, people start going, well, you know, I get a little defensive. Why why, why are you signing up to... I'm like, well, if if, if everybody's poor, I'm going to... Just calm down, okay? Does God want everyone to sell everything and become poor? No, I don't think He does. But, I, but does God want everyone to be aware of a hard hardness towards the poor? Absolutely. And it, and it, and it gets there quickly. We have to guard ourselves against the spirit of mammon, a spirit of luxury or self-indulgence without regard for others. Y'all... <clears throat> When you read the Gospels, Jesus seems to be more at war with mammon than anything else. Did you realize Jesus did not say you can't serve both sexuality and God? He didn't say that. He didn't say you can't serve both self and God. He said you can't serve God and mammon. Listen to me. That means Jesus takes his primary emphasis and his primary eggs in the basket and he puts all of his energy to say you can't serve God and mammon. Now, mammon, basically, what is being addressed here is self-indulgence and luxury. Now, here's the par part for Americans. When we hear the word mammon, it's confusing. It's like, what is it? Because we don't use the word mammon much. Have you ever been in a connect group at Dwelling Place Church where someone says, hey, man, how you been doing this week? And they say, well, I think I've been really struggling. Really? What are you struggling with? Man, I'm just struggling with mammon. Like mammon has its tentacles into my inner man. It is sapping me of the ability and soul. It is so eating us, we don't even know it. It's so secondary to our nature. We can't even confess it. We don't even have an awareness of the reality. It's just like, what do we even mean by mammon? Well, I want to define it for us. Is mammon money? No. Is mammon synonymous with money? No. Is there a certain amount at which like, I, cr- I, I, I crush the, the mammon threshold? Listen to me. Mammon is not about an amount. It's an about an attitude towards what I have. That's mammon. The spirit of mammon is not what I possess. It's my attitude towards what I possess. This is how Peter Kreft, he's a philosopher, he articulates this. He says, mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of abstract value with the intention to keep it for oneself far beyond the dictates of basic human survival and comfort. 
It is applied to a markedly high desire for and pursuit of wealth, status, and power. Mammon is similarly an inordinate desire to acquire or possess more than one needs. He goes on, Mammon is not as such or even desire for temporal possessions as such for the immoderate desire for them. And notice he says it's natural for man to desire external things. We all do as means. But mammon makes them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. Money is ubiquitously tempting because it's a kind of umbrella principle covering everything money can buy. But it also falsely promises to be a security blanket against change. It apes. Apes just means it it, it mimics. It apes divine self-sufficiency. What does James say? You have lived on earth in what? Luxury and self-indulgence. Now when we hear these warnings, we need to realize that the temptation of modern American life is to live in what? Luxury and self-indulgence. We live in a time that's called the consumer society. Everybody say that with me. Say consumer society. Now, I want to explain something for a moment, okay? Because a lot of people don't realize how we got to be a consumeristic nation. Did you know we've only been a consumeristic nation about 80 years? Let me explain to you in a very microcosm of how this has happened in American culture, okay? Basically, the consumer society broke into American life post-World War II. So everybody think 1949, 1945, 1949, Somewhere in that ballpark, okay? Do you remember what the generation previous to World War II was? That was called the Great Depression. And they had survived the Great Depression and the economic collapse. And for the most part, all of Americans redefined their entire lifestyles around contentment and thriftiness. So they would often be very more cautious in their spending. This is why your grandparents, if you're a millennial, your grandparents don't think about money anything like you think about money, okay? They had made their whole hearts and their whole shift theologically, philosophy, and certainly within their own, you know, mentally, the, the ability to be cautious in spending. They had a long-term mentality. They they raised their lifestyles out of concern of what it was to go without. But in World War II, something happened. I don't know if you know this. The American economy and the American military and the American production system came into being for the first time. So to join the efforts of World War II, the vast majority of American factories were converted into places to manufacture military weapons while our our husbands and our dads were on foreign soil. Because the men were fighting overseas, it was the first time in U.S. history that American women entered into the workforce in Massey. No American women hardly worked before this. So 1945, 1947, all of the women, they go into the workforce to work in the factories making the weapons for their own husbands who are overseas at this time. So as a result, for the first time in U.S. history, you have two income families. Up to this point, you didn't have two income families. There was a military salary and there was a salary of women making weapons at home. Well, after the war, something remarkable happened. In the vast parts of the world that were bombed out, by the world or by the the bombs, their infrastructure was destroyed. So you think about London. You can go to London today and still walk through the cities and through neighborhoods after the blitz. There's still chunks of homes that don't fit because they had to rebuild those homes after the blitz. Think of the cities in Japan, y'all. Nagasaki. Think of Hiroshima. What happened at the end of 1945? They're flattened out. But watch this. The United States had the opportunity. And here's the opportunity. We never fought the war on our own soil. We were the only nation basically still had our infrastructure. And now American society saw we're not just going to dominate in one area of the globe called our our wartime dominance, but we're going to dominate the whole globe in economics. So here's what happened in American psyche, okay? Any psychologist is going to tell you this. This is called the power of the story wars. What happens is 
We're going to not just be a military power, we're going to be an economic power, and we're going to dominate the globe. And so what they had to do was they had to deal with the American psychology because everybody in America was about thriftiness and not consumption. So they had to go out of their way to start TV shows and start changing American psychology. They had to get people to become consumers. Not thrifty people, but consumers. So what they do? It was actually... A thrift mindset, they begin to work on ways to do it. I want to tell you what economist Victor LeBoy, this is what Victor says. This is powerful. He said, our enormously productive economy in America demands that we make consumption our way of life. We must convert the buy, covert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. In order for Americans to live, we need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Welcome to America's Christmas. Folks, this has its tentacles all the way through us. We don't even see it. We have to speed up consumption, he's saying. And so in many ways, this is the first time that we really begin to change in Massey, the American story about what life was about. This is what we call the rise of the story wars. Now, the previous generation, the Great Depression generation, thrifty and careful with money, they said, we got to shift them into a consumer society. Well, how do we do that? we got to talk about stories. Let me talk about, there's four things that make up a story. You have to ask these four questions for any story. And anybody who's a storyteller is going to answer these questions. I'm convinced that the people who are going to win the culture in our day are the ones that tell the most beautiful story. And friends, we've got the advantage. It's called the gospel. Most beautiful story humans have ever heard. Here's, the, here's how stories are made. Number one, why are we here? Number two, what's gone wrong? Number three, what will fix things? And then what will it look like when they're fixed? And they said, we've got to make our story in America a consumer story. And the way they did this was the rise of Madison Avenue. Mad men. So this is where it all started, right? This is an actual street in New York City. It came into being, and they began to manipulate and tweak consumer preferences with the rise of marketing and mass media. And so one of the, main, the, the things they had to do was to con Americans into believing that they were at major risk in terms of their lifestyle. So you know what they did? They started using Abraham's Maslow's hierarchy of needs and trying to switch on American society. Okay, you remember Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You remember that? Psychology 101. You got the basic needs at the bottom. You got self-actualization at the top. If you don't, let me just go show you real quick. There's a pyramid of needs, okay? This pyramid of needs is biological, psychological needs at the bottom. And until someone has all of the progressive needs met, you can't get to transcendence or self-actualization. So what does this mean? If your bottom needs, which are basically like food and shelter and sex and sleep, if you don't get them met, you will never get to what we call self-actualization and philosophizing. So the challenge was, because of the success of American life in post-World War II, Americans had the highest standard of living of anybody on the globe. So next slide. This is where Americans were already living. And here's the problem. How do you get people who are already living at it to consume more? That's what, that, was the, that was the goal of the 1940s and 1950s. So this is Maslow's slide. We're already living at the highest economic level. This is where American life is at. Americans have the highest standard of living in all of people of recorded human history, but they had to change that story. So they produced a kind of marketing that has gone now for 80 years. Next slide. It's called the inadequacy approach. You got to convince Americans what they have is inadequate. You're going to do it through social media. You're going to do it through everything possible. You've got to get them to believe there's inadequacy in their life. 
And so the inadequacy approach goes on. The goal was to make you think you need basic things at another level. So now you combine that with the rise of mass media, meaning for the first time in American history, we're being fed shared narratives. You think about the scene in the 1940s. You ever seen it? Kids are gathered around the radios listening to the Cubs baseball game and parents are saying, get away from the radio. You're going to lose your hearing, boy. Right? You, you've seen these stories. Think about the, think about the 1950s. You get the introduction of the TV, right? Get away from the TV, kids. You're going to lose your eyesight. You're, you back away from the TV, right? What do we think in the 2020s? What do we do with phones? Get away from the phone, kids. You're going to lose your soul. Basically, listen to me, what has ended up happening is we would spend all of our time on these stories and many of the most famous TV shows were literally invented to sell products. So here's what they did. They got families that you liked and then the family went to the dinner table and put the product on the table. And you thought it was to draw you into the TV show, but it was really to sell a product. It's in advertising marketing what we call product placement. Jack Bauer in 24 destroys... 15 men and hops in the car and picks up a McDonald's cup and you see it in the front of your screen. And you think, I got to go get a world sweet McDonald's sweet tea just like Jack Bauer does, okay? And so all marketing begins to be put in front of Americans' faces. So this is what they want for Americans. You ready? Here's the rhythm. Work, watch, spend, repeat. Work, watch, spend, repeat. Work, watch, spend, repeat. Work, watch, spend, repeat. You know, during this time in history, there's been a lot of cultural conspiracy, especially since COVID. And people have said to me, like, Pastor Craig, you know what the mark of the beast is? You know what the mark of the beast is? I think I found the mark of the beast. Can I show you real quick? Here's the mark of the beast. Okay? Listen, I found the mark of the beast. Look at me, y'all. Look at me. I'm not here to beat up Pinterest, but let me tell you what. Do you know what Pinterest does? Next slide. It produces mammon boards. And we stack them all in our culture. And listen, the more mammon and the more influence and the more style that we can get in front of us. Now y'all think, just leave that up a moment. Do you think about how absolutely worse this became when it came to the issue of Instagram ads and algorithms? Watch this. Because listen, you had shared cultural stories, but now in 2023, listen, you're getting personalized algorithms based on your desires and habits. So when you get on your phone, every time you like something or you click on an ad, the algorithm becomes more aware of your preferences and they're facilitating a spirit of mammon in front of your face 24-7, customized to your aesthetic preferences and even your own color palettes that you like and put in your own house and it actually can I just be honest with you it actually feels amazing like I still get more deer products every day on my phone I get more and more bucks because I keep liking it I wake up this morning another buck was killed in my area last night and I just like wow I got to get out of church and get to the buck today the keep feeding me the stuff but if we're not careful all it's doing is turning us into a people fully seduced by a spirit of mammon so we have, to, we have to back up and think, whoa. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't give in to any of that. All right. Let me just show you something from Yale University of how our environments and situations shape us. This is psychological research. I came from Jonas Socks on how environments shape us. This is Yale University, no Christian. College students who fill out a questionnaire about their political opinions when standing next to a dispenser of hand sanitizer at least for a moment become more politically conservative than those standing next to an empty wall. Those who fill out a survey in a room that smells bad become more disapproving of gay men 
Shoppers walking past a good-smelling bakery are more likely to pull out their cash and make change for a stranger when asked. Subjects favor job applicants whose resumes are presented to them on heavy clipboards rather than just a sheet. Supposedly, egalitarian white people, so those are what we would call uh, woke liberals, who are under time pressure are more likely to misidentify a tool as a gun after being shown a photo of a black male face. People are more likely to vote for sales tax that will fund education when the polling place is in a school. So I just want to say this. If you think you're immune to what's being fed to you, you are deceived. You and I are way more influenced than we think. And in many ways, if we're not careful, we become shepherded for the most part, not by Jesus, but by algorithms from tech companies in Silicon Valley. So we just have to take into effect that this is shaping us. Boom, 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 boom. Shape, 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 shape. Image, 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 image. Word, 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 word. Meme, 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 meme. And it shapes us. Jonathan says this. This is powerful. He says the Puritan values of thrift and modesty were smashed, abandoned for easy consumer credit, conspicuous consumption, and deep personal relationships with brands. In terms of epoch marking changes, this has been as profound a shift as the atom bomb. Now, I want to just say this as followers of Jesus. We must resent, resist the spirit of self-indulgence and luxury that ignores the poor because honestly, if we're not careful, if we're not conscious in how our money is given to us, we participate, as James says, in unjust gain. Look what it says in verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Many years ago in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's in New York City. I don't want to go into all of it, but it's why, why it's called this. But it's a, it's a pretty nasty place, and it was where all the factory workers were um, worked where they were predominantly German immigrants. And there was a local pastor there by the name of Walter Rushenbosch. Walter Rushenbosch was the first guy I had to read when I got into Lee University for something called the Social Gospel. First book we had to read. Rushenbosch was perplexed because he saw that all the factory owners went to good, professional, upstanding, upscale churches on Sundays, but all week long they did everything they could within their power to oppress the workers in their factories. And he's trying to pastor the workers in the factories. And he's trying to ask the question, how do we close the gap? What do we do here? And the wealthy elites who went to church on Sunday said, don't worry about it. They'll go to heaven when they die. And he said, what? Doesn't heaven have something to say about the way they live now? And he took that idea and guess what it became? It's been robbed now. It's called progressive liberalism or the social gospel. That's not really what he wanted to do in the beginning. Now, it's been, it's been destroyed. It's destroyed a whole generation, the whole social gospel, pulled away from personal repentance and transformation. It's just about what we do to help people socially, okay? But the reason it started is because there was a gap between the fate and lifestyle of the poor and those who seem to be making money off of their backs. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not. There's a huge now listen to me, I don't want to be political, but if you're over the age of 40, I want you to focus with me just for a moment, okay? Normally when I talk about such things, people want to get uptight. Just follow me for a moment. I'm not saying I agree with it, but just follow what's happening in the American psyche. There is a huge cultural rise today in neo-Marxism and Marxism and even little areas of communism in our ideology, particularly the Gen Zers. And look, this is just my opinion, my opinion. I think it's pretty clear that the 20th century shows that Marxism does not lead to liberation. It leads to tyranny and death. We see that in Venezuela. We see that in Cuba. It leads to death. So I'm not pushing that agenda whatsoever, but I've always asked the question, 
This always gets tense, particularly if you vote for people or talking with people that are super conservative. I'm very conservative. Why are the young people drawn to that? You just have to ask it. Why are they drawn to that? Rather than saying, oh, with election and votes and all, like just why, why is that? I'm just going to put this out there. Maybe because the same hippies who were all about peace and love and the poor in the 1960s grew up and got seduced by a spirit of mammon and they ended up living lives of luxury that betrayed their earlier countercultural values that they had when they were teens. And young people see the world today and the need like never before and they don't have to say, oh, the Indian slums are bad. They have relationship with people on their Instagram who live in India and they're watching them and they're interacting with the world and they see people living in trash heaps in inner cities and they have awareness of a system and oppression. And when they're looking at it, they're saying, who's going to care about this? And a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm getting my third house and my fourth house. And if you say that type of thing to an 18-year-old, what's going to happen in the American shift? They're going to look for mechanisms and hearts that address the brokenness of our world. So look at me. I want you to hear me. I am not in support of the left's agenda in any way, shape, or form. I think you all know me as your pastor and your leader by this. I am not, I am not in favor of that at all. But listen to, people are drawn, I think, to them because Christians are so silent about the need in many ways. And that's why Gen Zers say, I want to change the world. They're smoking pot every day and they still want to change the world. Right? Exactly. Well, I thought you were against Marxism, Pastor Craig. What do you mean? Here's the point I'm trying to make. We've got a moment in American history like the Jerusalem church that says, how will Christians respond to the gap? And when the Apostle Paul is in the book of Galatians, he's doing some serious theology and he's dealing with heresy and legalism, all these challenges in the middle of it. James shows up and says, I just want to make sure in the midst of all your theology and defending the gospel, you remember the poor. Remember the poor in Jerusalem. He says, God cares about the poor. This will result, listen to us, in us not being blessed, but in judgment. Look at verse 1. Here's the strong language. Now listen, you rich people, weep and well because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted. You must have eaten your clothes. Moths have eaten clothes with gold and silver and corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. James is commanding a prophetic response. Weep, how? This means to sob out loud, by the way, in Greek. It's the same phrase used at a funeral when someone dies. And then he adds another word, which literally is only used in the New Testament. It means to shriek or scream. So taken together, James 5 and 1 is the strongest prophetic rebuke in the tradition of the Old Testament for those who have closed their hearts to the poor. Your wealth is rotted. Moths are destroying your clothes. Money's corrupted. Now, here, here's the last thing I'll say, and then we're going to go to godly wealth. When we think of this happened in the 40s, you know what happens in AD 70? And in 66 AD, the Romans come in and they siege the city of Jerusalem, 66. And for four years, they hold it captive. And the Romans put a siege. You know what happens? All of the people who are in the city who are living in luxury are the ones who experienced the wrath of the Roman Empire. And when the city of Jerusalem eventually fell, do you know what they did? They went in, the Romans did, and took the temple bounty and all the bounty of the rich people in Jerusalem. And they took it to Rome. And you know what they built in Rome? They built the Colosseum. Most people don't know the Colosseum of Rome was built off of the wealth of Jerusalem. So watch this. The people who had acquired their wealth by oppressing the poor in Jerusalem then built a system with their own judgment, right? Where later their own people would be in judgment uh, with the Romans against them. And what did James do? He prophesied this would happen. These are serious words. Serious words. How are we doing? Y'all doing okay? All right. So I'm done with godless wealth. 
Now, what's the vision of godly wealth? What does that look like? If, that's, if unjust systems and hoarding and lives of luxury and privilege is the godless, how do we get out of that? Well, there's another church that was a really, really awesome church, and we're going to see Paul addresses it. It's the church where Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, a wealthy city, and it gives us clear pictures of what it's like to use our wealth in a godly way. Paul sends a letter to Timothy, and if you remember correctly, Timothy's pastoring the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a financial center of the Roman Empire, and the Temple of Artemis, we know about the Temple of Artemis. It was a huge shrine, but it was a bank. People think it was just a place for like orgies and craziness. It was a bank. It was an economic system. In fact, the Caesars used to store their wealth there because it was so secure. And so you remember early in the book of Acts, Paul's preaching the gospel and it begins to touch the whole economy. The Bible says it led to a whole wide city riot. Why? Because there's so much prosperity connected to uh, the false god. And so here, years later, after the revival, Paul's an old man. He's in prison. Timothy's leading there, and Timothy has a challenge. Many of the wealthy people in the city of Ephesus have become followers of Jesus. And so he's like, what do you do with their money? They're following Jesus now. So Paul says to him, here's how to encourage those people with cultural wealth, with true resources, to use it in a godly way. Let's look at it, what he says in the passage. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. First thing he says is this. If godless wealth captures your heart and the spirit of mammon, then godly wealth comes to you when you have a free heart. It's about a free heart. Look what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, but put their hope in God. I love this vision, y'all. Don't you love this vision? Leave it up there just a moment, Kat. Look at that verse. Look at that last part of verse 17. How beautiful of a vision. God lets us enjoy things. He tells us He gives us stuff to enjoy them. But we do it with free and generous hearts. Y'all listen to me. Psalm 62 verse 10 says, Though your riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Though you're getting more riches, don't let your heart go out to them. Don't let your affections go out with your lifestyle. When Meredith and I were in Cleveland, Tennessee, we had this really wealthy man in our church, tremendously blessed by God, very, very godly man. And y'all know there's ways you categorize people in wealth. So he's not just got one amazing house or two amazing houses. He got three amazing houses. But he's just so generous. Money does not have him. He has helped the church unbelievably. And he views himself as a steward, and he has this thing that he told us when we had our little staff meeting. He calls it placeholder theology. I love that. He basically says, before I know it, I'm going to leave this life and I'm going to be with Jesus. And God has blessed me to make a temporary trust with a temporary stewardship. Before I know it, someone else is going to live in this house. Before I know it, someone else will be stewarding this wealth. God's given it to me for a moment. I'm a placeholder. Listen, I'm not trying to depress you, but listen to me. Should the Lord tarry 200 years from now, people that you've never met that are strangers will be living in your house, own all of your resource, won't know your name, and you'll be forgotten. Placeholder theology. We just are stewards. We just have what we have for a little bit. And I'm to leverage it for the sake of the gospel. Leverage it for the sake of the kingdom. And y'all, this man in Tennessee, he's free in his heart. Because mammon isn't about how much you have. It's about how much your attitude is. Y'all, I've met some very, very greedy poor people. Do you know greed can be in poverty? High greed. Why? Because it's the state of your heart. 
So the first thing he says is if you have to learn to make sure our hearts are free, that the resource of God can flow through us, can it flow through you? And the second thing he says to these Christians in Ephesus, they need to be radically generous. Command those who are rich. Next slide. This is key, rural key. Giving is never a money issue, always a heart issue. Always a heart issue. It's my heart free from this, right? Next slide, key, okay? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, verse 18. Notice this, rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share. Command, everybody say command. Y'all, we don't like this language. I want you to imagine, just leave that up a moment, command them. I want you to imagine you're sitting here, okay? And you started a company a couple years ago, a venture, and you timed it right, and I mean, just all happened for you, and you, you're, you're about to sell out, okay? You're cashing out on this thing, and you do so well that it makes the Atlanta Live news. And then all of a sudden, you're just sitting there one night, and you, you, your dreams are come true, and all of a sudden, you get an email from Pastor Chad. And Pastor Chad says, hey, Pastor Chad here, my friend. You're one of our stakeholders in the church, and I was just reading the news, and I just saw that you just went public and cashed out. I'd just love to have a meeting with you. And you and I just have a meeting together. Y'all know where I'm going with this, don't you? What? Okay, gosh, okay. I, I mean, yeah. And at this meeting, Pastor Chad pulls out this passage and says, um, 1 Timothy 6, 18. <clears throat> Here's what God's Word says. It says that I am to command you to be generous. So I'd just like to spend the next 30 minutes just talking about your lifestyle and what you're thinking about doing with that whole thing that you've just achieved. And I just feel like, to be honest with you, God's telling me to be your accountability partner. He probably wants me to help you steward this. Like, what? You would, what right do you? Command those who are rich to be generous. Meaning, we don't like it, but we got to get over it. The scripture tells us. Command them. It's not an option. It's crazy. If you, if you just listen to the scripture, it'll mess you up. It'll change your life. It really will change your life. Command those who are rich to be generous. Be generous with your resources. Like, what? What right do you have to tell... Now, here's the truth. If you are a sincere follower of Jesus, I want to tell you, generosity is in your DNA. In your new birth, you have a new covenant heart that wants the things of God. So sitting in that seat this morning is a generous heart, a generous life. Listen to me. It may be clouded up and, cl and, and, and clogged up when the, spirit, when the spirit of mammon gets me, but when the spirit of God works in me, I come back to that default state of generosity. And you see, our culture really only knows about how to give out of guilt rather than give out of generosity. And I want to I land the plane here, okay? And I want to delineate two things. We mostly know how to give out of guilt, okay? Rather than giving out of generosity. Next slide. This is key, okay? Knowing next slide. Biblical generosity is not prosperity teaching. It's priority teaching. It's not about me giving to get. It's about the priority of my heart. What is it that I've put my heart on, okay? And the proverb is so powerful. Next slide, because the, the scripture tells us we're owners of nothing and we're stewards of what? Everything. And what does the next slide say? As the proverb declares to us, the world of the generous gets larger and larger and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller, right? It's about heart issues. Our culture only knows how to give out of guilt. Here's how you define giving out of guilt. I want to define it for you. Giving out of guilt says, how much do I have to give to make the annoying guilt go away? How much do I have to give to give the annoying guilt out of my heart? And so what do you do? You use it as payment. And this is, the, this is the amount you give where you feel like you can enjoy the rest without feeling bad. Did I get clear? Is that clear? Giving out of guilt. Where I can give enough so that the rest feels okay. 
But listen to me, that's reactive, that's sporadic, because it's whenever guilt strikes you. But generous giving in the New Testament is about how much do I get to give for others. It's strategic, it's sacrificial, and it's systematic. So it has a plan to take what God's given you and help others prosper. Do you see the strategy? Giving out of generosity is strategic. I've thought it through. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is how I'm going to give. And one of my favorite stories, you've probably heard me tell it before. I heard a pastor tell many years ago, because this changed his life, many, many years ago, 20 years ago, he was a youth pastor in the church in Tennessee. And he and his wife are super young. They just moved up from Texas in Bible college. And it's just like his first real job in ministry. He got a real paycheck. And he didn't really know much about money and from like a very, very modest family background and all the rest of it. But it didn't take him long to realize his salary, salary as the youth pastor was not enough to live in Nashville, Tennessee. So he ended up living in a, in a trailer park. And you, you guys obviously know trailer parks. He's living in a trailer park. And so he's in the trailer park and still doesn't have enough. To, we, they've done every. They're driving a free car. They're not, they don't have a car, he and his wife. And everything in their power they've done to, to cut their cost, and it's still not enough. So his wife goes and gets a job at the Starbucks at Five Points. They're on the corner. And his wife is one of the first managers of that Starbucks. And he, he said he remembered it opened up. He's like, babe, this is a great company. You can get stock options. They got good insurance. Like, this is incredible. So she gets a job there. And then one day, someone in the church goes through the Starbucks who works, who worked on Main Street. And the guy saw her in the Starbucks barista line and said, you're the new youth pastor's wife, right? And she said, yes. And he said, did you just have a baby? And she said, yeah, I just did. He said, I saw you up at the baby dedication at church. You're on stage. She said, yeah. So where's the baby? She said, well, my husband, he's looking after it. What? Isn't he a youth pastor? Yeah, but it's like we're just trying to make our lives work. And so he said, well, here's my card. Give this to your husband and tell him to call me. So she comes home and she said, I had this really weird interaction to her husband with this dude today. And here's the card. He wants you to call him. He's like, well, I'll call him. So he gives the guy a call. They get together with him and he says, hey, sorry, I know this is kind of weird, but we got a real, we got a, me and my wife got a real, real heart for young couples and God has blessed us financially. And one of the things we want to do is whenever we see a need, we just want to bless people. And um, he said, let me just ask a question. Does your wife have a desire to work like outside the home? Or would you prefer her to be at home with your son? And he said, well, honestly, really, she wants to be a stay-at-home mom. He said, I got a deal for you. He said, how much does your wife make? If you'll tell me how much your wife makes, I and my wife will write a check every month so she can stay home and raise your son if you'll just meet with me once a month and in my presence talk to me about your marriage and pray about your marriage. You can have just what you need. And listen to me. I remember hearing that story, and I'm thinking, all I hear about the American culture is Christians are greedy. They're greedy. And I'm like, I freaking love Christians. Christians are awesome, y'all. Christians are the most generous people that I've ever met. Christians are awesome. Like, I hear people talking about Christians being greedy. These are the type of stories. And for my own story, it's been the faithfulness of God of Christians whose heart's been touched. And the reason that was so potent to me to hear as a story is because in my young 20s, that began to shape my life. And as a young man, I'm now not thinking the solution to American culture is Marxism. I'm thinking the solution to the American culture is the people of God unleashing the resources they have on behalf of others and seeing a nation change when we live with open hearts. 
Tim Keller has a concept I love. It's called, I call it financial promiscuity. Look what he says. He says the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in the way the pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. He said a pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave sex or their body to everybody. He said the Christians came along and practically had sex with nobody, gave their body to nobody, and gave practically everybody their money. I love that. Financial promiscuity. It's like, man, this guy's so generous, he just can not keep his wallet in his pants, honestly. Like anytime he sees a need, he's like, I got you, man. I got you, dude. I got you. I got you taken care of. Whatever you need, I got it, right? We're, we're so sexually promiscuous and financially stingy, but the church that is conservative in America with its sexuality and not promiscuous in its sexuality, but will be conservative in its sexuality and generous with our resources is the church that the culture in America is waiting to see. That's what they're longing to see. Financial promiscuity, not sexual promiscuity. Generous and conservative with their values. And ultimately all this happens because God's heart is that we experience true life. And I I end, this is what 1 Timothy says, command them to be good and rich deeds, be generous and willing to be shared. Why? To lay up a treasure. Everybody say treasure. You're laying up an eternal portfolio. One that will not be taken in the next market crash. Will not be taken whatever happens with crypto. Won't happen whenever things happen with real estate or international relations. You're laying up an eternal portfolio. It's stored for us and secure in heaven. And it's a firm foundation for the coming age. So you can take hold of that which is truly life. Would you say it when we say truly life? That's what he says. Y'all, America has the highest standard of living of, of, of any modern nation, and we have the highest rate of depression and suicide in the world. Stuff is not enough. Stuff won't make it. There's a kind of true life. And if I was to be really honest, it's kind of hard to say these things in a place like Atlanta, isn't it? Because this place called Atlanta exerts influence on, on a place where lifestyle creep happens. We're actually the fifth richest city in the entire world. 5.5 million, but they're expecting us to be 7.5 to 8.5 million by the year 2050. And something just gripped my heart as I was thinking this week. I want to show you this last thing. This is called the poverty tree. Everybody see the bottom? The roots of it are adult criminality, dad deprivation, family structure leads to poverty, childhood trauma leads to poverty, poor education, juvenile criminality. Unemployment, poor decision-making, welfare dependence, housing insecurity, people born into, poor health and health care, addiction. Addiction leads to major poverty. Major poverty. Geography leads to poverty. Now, I want you to look at that for a moment. So many U.S. folks are completely suffering greatly. And my question is this, church. Who in the world is raising the problem solvers? There is nothing more depressing to me then when I talk to a middle school or high school student or young adult and their life aspiration is to become a content creator or go to college to secure a well-paying job for a life of comfort and ease. Where are the problem solvers? Where are the people in our church who say, I'm going to be raised up by God to solve some issues? My life is going to leave a mark. I'm going to make an impact. What's your aspiration? I want to be a brand. 
Really? Are we going to leverage that brand for the sake of issues? What do we want? Who's hearing the call of God to solve problems? Who wants their life to be so deeply impacted they live generously? We make an impact. God's heart is that we would never be the rich oppressor. We would be the radical people of God stewarding wealth in a way that honors Him and serves our culture. So I want to give you two quick application points. Number one, here's the thing. You just need, we need to examine the stories of our heart and just ask the question, is mammon in there at all? Come on, Kobe. Look at me, look at me. Have I so reduced the horizon of my life? Oh, yeah, thank you, Caleb. Has the horizon of my concern about my life, as long as my kids have a college fund and I have wedding funds, then that's basically the end of my obligation to the world. Or is your horizon bigger than that? Think about your financial horizon. Is it just so that your kids make it? Or is it so that your life could be an unbelievable blessing to others? We have to ask that question. What's in my heart? What's the horizon of my heart? Jesus said, listen, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Y'all know a lot of rich people with amazing houses and terrible marriages and absent kids. Saw that kid this week on the TV that killed his teacher. I don't know if you get to see his dad. Dad stands up and is weeping. And it just, I mean, I'm like crying because he divorced his mama, the kid's mama, when they're three, abandoned the kid, and the kid went into attachment theory, and then after seven or eight years old, they didn't spend time with him. Dad went off to work every day, let him stay at home. Then at 13 years old, the COVID hits. After COVID hits, he's involved more, disconnected from the world, and he comes out and he kills a teacher. And the dad's sitting there knowing my son's going to be put to death. And he's crying. I'm like, who failed the kid? It's the dang parents. Keep failed the kid. He's going to die. Yeah, he made decisions. Yeah, he had to take responsibility for his dumb decisions. But at some point, we have to wake up. We have to wake up as a culture. And if our culture's not going to wake up, we as a church, we got to wake up and say, where are the problem solvers? How's my life going to really make a difference in any other person's life? How is my life going to be beyond the horizon of my own three kids and my wife and family? The horizon of my life to affect the community around me, the neighbors that live on my street, the city that's around me. How is my life going to affect them? I got to ask that question. And listen to me, here's the crazy thing. God, am I becoming like the third soil because all the stuff is choking out the world? The way we resist that is through generosity. Every time I give money, I declare money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. We always think spiritual warfare is prayer and fasting, but did you know spiritual warfare is generosity? Because every time you give, you declare war against greed in your heart. That's spiritual warfare. I'm declaring a war on this greed. Lord, take it out of me. Last thing I would tell you. Let's examine the story of our heart. Second application, and this is a practical application. I think it's very practical. Have something in your life that makes people shake their heads and think, why do they do that? So if this is where God has blessed you, try and have a radical class distinction between the group of people so that wherever you find yourself financially, people look at you and say, your peer reference group, and they say, man, something different about what you do with your wealth. 
So think about this. Only the Holy Spirit can show you this, but think about meeting with your spouse. Think about talking as a family. Think about if you're single. What could you do that will radically distinguish you from your peer group in the way you use your resources? I'm going to give you a practical example. Spent time with a guy years ago, legitimate billionaire. Legitimate billionaire. I, not my friend. I was in a meeting with him and other pastors. Super wealthy. He got convicted from Isaiah 58. He didn't want to build his wealth on the backs of the poor, and so God seized his heart. And he felt one of the things God was asking him to do was to get rid of a private jet. Now, if you've been around wealth, you know that's the epitome. He said, God said, I want you to travel first class. So he goes, and he begins to travel first class. Now, if I go to the airport this next week, and when I'm walking to the airport, y'all know I've never, been, I've, never, I've never flown first class. You get in first class on the airplane, and first class people love to get on early, and they're just kind of looking at you, kind of like they're sort of pleb middle classness, like, are you on my own plane? You know, have you ever walked down the aisles and they're just doing this? Like, you know, looking over at you. Watching you come down the aisle with a sense of disgust. I'm kidding. My point is, we might look at him and say, who's that person flying first class? You know how much money that could be given for other friends, but you know what his peer group does? Why does that dude fly commercial and sell all of his jets? Do you see the difference? It's perspective. It's perspective. It's perspective. We think, uh, first class? His peers look and say, first class? What do you do among your peer groups that makes them look at you and say, something different about that dude. Something different the way he uses his money. Let's investigate that a little bit. Let's pry that a little bit. This is a new people. I want to end with this quote. Come on, worship team. This is written about the early Christians, how they pushed back on the persecution and claims against them in the early empire. This is a statement about how they cared for one another. It says this, They love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes, and they rejoice over him as a brother. And if there's anything or any among them that is poor and needy, if they have no food to spare, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy that lack of food. He says this phrase, Such a king is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people. Watch this. There is something divine in the midst of them. May it be said of Dwelling Place Church, Woodstock, this is a new humanity and a new people in the middle of Cherokee County and there is something divine in the midst of them. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.